Welcome to The Mastering Show. This is the show where we talk about all aspects of mastering. I'm Steve Cherubino, just one of your hosts. And let me introduce my co-host, the man who actually brings the knowledge to the show, Mr. Ian Shepard. Hi, Steve. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How about yourself? I'm very well, thank you. That's good. So we have a nice topic today that I think a lot of people are going to be interested in. Absolutely. This is episode number three, uh, and we're talking about limiting. And I think I'm going to kick it off by saying that probably everything you know about limiting is wrong. You mean the more limiting, the better isn't right? (laughs) No, no. More is always good. Um, Well, it all depends, doesn't it? That's that's the key. It's it's not about more or less. I guess the key thing, I keep seeing people recommending you use a limiter and they say, pull the threshold down until you see whatever they say, two, three dBs limiting and then stop. And that for me is completely wrong. So I'm going to talk about why that's completely wrong in this show. And cool. um, we're also going to talk about, I have a, a nice little mastering maxim for you at the end to do with limiter use. But I thought kind of to start with, we could talk briefly about what a limiter is. Um, And in a nutshell, a limiter is a compressor, but it's a compressor with a very high ratio and very fast attack and release times. Okay. Um, So, you know, with a compressor, you maybe are, you're reducing the dynamics of the signal a little bit. You know, when it gets really loud, it's not going to sound quite as loud and you're maybe bringing up some of the quieter passages. And we're going to talk in detail about compression next week. With a limiter, it's the case that when the audio signal reaches a certain point, it stops. It doesn't go any higher. Um, Now, that happens anyway. If you just push an audio signal up and keep pushing it up so that it hits the red of the peak meters in your DAW or on your recording format, you get something called clipping, where the top of the waveform is just sliced straight off. and people have probably seen that. You know, you you had this nice kind of smooth waveform and you push it up to the top and it, it gets it's flat topped. It's like somebody's come along with a chainsaw and just cut the top of it. Right. And the problem with that is it sounds ugly and it does a load of damage to the sound. So what a limiter does is it also stops the signal from going any higher, but hopefully it does it in a kind of a musical way, in a graceful way, um, so that you don't hear the damage that you would if you just clipped the signal. Um, so, I mean, how about you? Do you use limiters? Do you, have you, do you use clipping? How do you do things? I do limiting, like you said in the very beginning, about how people most people do it, and that's the wrong way. <laughs> I, I'll put a limiter on my master bus, and just when I see the, the volume kind of start to tickle the limiter, just kind of turn it on and off a tiny bit, I kind of think I'm in the right spot, so I, that's where I leave it. Okay. In, in which case, let's talk about why. I mean, I'm saying that's the wrong way to use it. It's, you're not going to do too much harm that way. Providing you don't push a limiter too hard, you're unlikely to do too much damage. So the problem is what you aren't doing when you have that approach is it's not taking any account of what the signal was like before you applied the limiter and you don't have a goal in mind. Okay. Yeah. So let's consider two extreme examples. If I'm uh, a pro mastering engineer and I get two mixes from the band, um, one of them is uh, came from a producer who loves his compression. So he's got a compressor on the the stereo output bus. He's got compression on every instrument in the mix. He might even have a limiter on the. So I, I already get something that's heavily compressed and limited already. 
So we were talking about peaks and loudness last week. You know, the loudness might be almost as loud as I would recommend for a, for a master in the first place. But then let's say they have another song that they recorded with another guy, and it's a different style. It's kind of an acoustic ballad, and he's a real purist. He just records the mic straight and only balances the levels using faders and doesn't use any compression at all. He thinks that the mastering engineer should handle that. If you use the technique that I hear people recommend so often where you just pull down the threshold of the limiter on both of those tunes till you see a dB or two of gain reduction, you're going to make the one that was already really loud a little bit louder, and you're going to make the one that was really quite quiet, the kind of the gentle acoustic thing, slightly louder, but it's still going to be a lot quieter. Right, right. So then then you kind of put those two next to each other on an album and wonder why they don't stand up next to each other. So the approach that I suggest for limiting is completely different. And it goes back to the metering that we talked about last episode. And I talked right at the end, you remember the mastering maxim was about never changing the mastering level, always having your monitoring at the same gain. Yep. Like I said, you have to be careful what that gain is because that determines how loud you're going to master things. Because, you know, if, you're, if your monitoring is at 10 and you turn your track up so it sounds good at 10... If 10 was really loud, the thing you're mastering is actually going to be quite quiet because you won't have to turn it up that much for it to sound really loud to you. Whereas if your monitoring is down at like five, you're going to have to push the level way up to get it to sound loud enough to you in the room because your monitoring level is low. So you're going to be pushing the level really high. I see. That makes sense? Yep. Okay. So you have to choose your monitoring gain carefully and we'll come back to it in a later episode in more detail. But basically, what I would recommend to start off with, if people are going to be trying this stuff out themselves, is to start with, you get a loudness meter and start with that minus 12 LUFS integrated loudness that we talked about last week. That's pretty conservative by modern standards. And you can use all the strategies we're going to be talking about on these shows to push stuff louder if that's what you want. Um, But if you choose that as a starting point, that's going to give you... The stuff's going to be good and loud, good and healthy, without kind of going over the top. And that's where you set your monitoring level. That's where you set the playback level of your reference tracks. So remember, if you're going to be mastering your own stuff, you need something to refer to. You need some other songs that you think sound amazing out in the real world. You need to bring them into your DAW and refer to them to get a good EQ balance and to choose your loudness. So if you picked um, Weezer, <laughs> I don't know how loud Weezer is. Weezer is probably pretty loud. Okay. Um, let's, let's say it measures minus eight LUFS integrated when you measure it with a loudness meter, right? You play, play the song from beginning to end and it comes out and it says minus eight. I'm saying you should turn that down by four dBs so when it plays back, the meters read minus 12. Got it. Okay. Because... That would be quite loud. And if you don't do that, you're going to be automatically trying to match everything to it and make everything loud, which is not what we're talking about at this stage. So minus 12 is fairly conservative. That's going to mean that if you bring in a classic Pink Floyd album, you know, from the the 70s, mm-hmm. you might have to turn it up a little bit to get it to that level. Or maybe it'll be there already. But most of your mixes, you're going to have to turn up to reach that loudness. Okay. So you take your reference track, a 
adjust it so that it plays back at minus 12 LUFS integrated. And then you adjust your monitor gain so that it sounds good to you in the room. When you say good, just comfortable? I would say as loud as you want to listen to it for long periods of time. Okay. Um, if you're listening to everything and feeling like, oh, I just want to push the level up a bit more, then turn it up slightly. But at the point where you start to, you know, you can... You start to get ear fatigue from listening for long periods of time. Yeah. That, that's when you've gone too far. Okay. I mean, okay, so just to give some people some numbers, another thing you can do is uh, there are some uh, apps now for smartphones that will allow you to measure sound pressure levels. Okay. Um, they're not very accurate, but just to kind of get you started, if you get one of those and you play back some music that's been set to minus 12 LUFS in your door. And it's reading about 80 dB SPL on the app on your phone, peaking up to kind of 84, 86 for the really loud sections. Yeah. That's the kind of level that I listen to it okay. at. And you need to be careful. You need to choose the C-weighted setting on one of those apps. There's two different measure, measure, measuring SPL and you need to choose the C-weighted one. So that's going to give you, that's the kind of level I would suggest. And if you feel that's too loud for you, choose something quieter. If you want to crank it slightly, by all means do, but be aware you might be damaging your hearing. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, it's pretty loud. So you're also allowed to have that dim position that I told you about last week where you turn it down by 12 dBs to listen quieter as well to give your ears a rest from time to time. Now, it doesn't matter how much limiting you have because you're choosing your levels by ear and by the meters. Uh, that's not strictly true. If you have more than four dBs of limiting, I would say you probably need to be careful because you could be doing some damage to the sound and you probably need to use the compression, which is what we're going to talk about next week. But what I mean by saying it doesn't matter is that it's not a case of pulling the threshold down until you see the limiter start to work. If you have a a quite heavily compressed song, like I mentioned before, mm -hmm. you bring the level up to minus 12, it sounds good in comparison to your reference song, and there's no limiting happening, you're good to go. I see. I right? See. It doesn't need any more limiting. Right. Whereas if you have your acoustic guitar song that's much more uh, peaky and uncompressed, and you bring that up, chances are the limiter might be working fairly hard on that by the time you get it loud enough. And that's okay too, providing it's not doing any harm. That makes sense. It, it all came together there at the end. <laughs> yeah, it, it took a little while to get there, but it's <laughs> it's an important point, right? It's it's not about the game reduction that you set. It's about how loud you want the music to be. Right. And if people try out this level I'm suggesting of minus 12 and they, they just think, no, it's just not loud enough for me, they can choose louder levels and they'll need more limiting. Um, that's Okay. It's just not what I would recommend at this stage. I see. Now, a couple of times there, I mentioned you don't want too much limiting. And I think we should talk about why that is. One of the other things that I would say people are wrong about with limiters is that lots of people think that heavy limiting is a really bad thing. Uh, they think that limiters can damage the sound. Actually, that's not true. If you use a limiter gently, and it's a decent limiter, it's probably the most transparent way of increasing the level of a song. If you've got a really good limiter, you can have two, three, maybe even four dBs of limiting, and it sounds absolutely fine, and nobody would ever notice or realize 
that there's limiting has been used. I don't want to so, get off track Ian, but can you recommend a really good limiter? Uh, there's a, a bunch of, of good ones. I mean, my absolute favorite is one that comes with the TC Electronic MD3 package of mastering plugins. Um, that's based on their hugely expensive System 6000, which is a hardware system. But you used to be able to get it for this thing called the Power Core. Unfortunately, it's not available anymore. So unless people are going to get on eBay to get that, they probably don't have access to it. But there's a bunch of other... I mean, the one that's in Ozone is pretty good okay. these days. Um, Melder Production have a decent limiter in their package. The FabFilter Pro-L limiter is really good. Actually, I really like that one. I've been using it and experimenting with it recently. Okay. I haven't used it, but I people say they like the Massey limiter, which I think is very affordable. Um, so yeah, th there's a there's a bunch of good options. I mean, actually, it's not what you asked, but I would say in lots of ways, the choice of limiter is less important because I'm recommending you use it quite gently. And you'll see when we talk about compression in the next episode that if you use compression in the way that I'm recommending, the limiter won't have to work as hard and is less likely to cause the kind of damage that can be a problem. Gotcha. So that, yeah, that gets us back to this idea of damage. Um, the problem with limiters is when people use them uh, too much. Because a limiter basically stops the waveform dead when it reaches a certain point, which is usually close up to zero, it's a very aggressive form of processing. Now, the reason it usually works is that it usually only works on the spikiest bits of the waveforms, the transients, right? The stuff at the beginning of, say, a drum hit or uh, a piano chord or a, a strum on a guitar. Right. And those are very fast. And because they're very fast, you can restrict their level, which is what the limiter does. And without barely really, notice it. Without, yeah, that's it. You, you hardly ever hear it. But after the transient is the rest of the the note often when you're talking about music the body of the drum sound or the you know the sustained part of a bass note or the tone of a singer and if the limiter starts to cut into those that's when it sounds really unnatural and aggressive um and in fact it starts to sound to me it starts to sound bad before that because in order to get to the stage where the limiter is working on those parts of the signal you have to really tame the transients and then you kind of start to get this dull, lifeless, kind of held-in-a-box kind of feeling to the sound, right. which is that over-limited sound that, personally, I don't like. So I think that's where limiters get a bad name. I mean, I, I think I said last episode that when I started out mastering, all I had was a limiter, an EQ. And that worked okay back then because the overall levels that we were trying to achieve were lower than they are today. And because a lot of the stuff was coming out of pro studios and probably had pretty good control of the dynamics already. I think people have taken that idea and think that you can still do all of the level boosting you need with a limiter these days. And if you're going for stuff that's competitive with the other levels out there today, and especially if you're doing something that maybe is less well managed dynamically, you're going to end up doing too much limiting. And that's why I would recommend using some gentle compression followed by some limiting to avoid overdoing it. I see. So the guy who thinks he's going to get like a stu pro studio sounding track, professional sounding track, by just cranking up the limiter, he's 
not most likely not going to get that because he hasn't really controlled the dynamics through compression in his song. Could be. I mean, it depends how it depends how his song was. If he's managed, if he's used loads of compression already, maybe he will. But what I hear a lot is people overusing limiters, trying to get the level up, and then wondering why it doesn't sound good. Right. Yep. So so it's it's not it's not kind of you're not definitely going to have a problem, but there's a good chance that you'll have a problem if you try and do it that way. Got it. And yeah, if you use them right, if you use them gently, actually the difference in sound between different limiters is probably pretty minimal. Right. Um, there is a subtle difference. I mean, I mentioned the FabFilter Pro L. That's got, if you go into the advanced settings of that, it's got four different um, se settings that you can choose. It's got loads of parameters that you can tweak. And there is a subtle difference between them, especially when you're pushing it that little bit harder. But I would say overall, the choice of limiter is probably less important than making sure you're using it effectively, which means subtly. I see. If you use it in the way that I'm recommending, which we'll come to next week, it's only going to be affecting the transients, so it can sound very transparent. It can you can you cannot know it's there, and that's one of my golden rules of mastering: is I want the stuff that I do to be invisible. I don't believe in stamping my own sound on stuff. I want to take what the artist and the the mix engineer and the producer have made and make it sound as good as I possibly can, without anybody knowing how I did it. So having the sound of too much limiting on a song or too much compression or anything else, to me, is not acceptable. Got it. It's like they know something is better about their music, but they don't know quite what it is. Exactly. So now that I'm saying these things to you, does that make sense? Have you ever kind of tried to use a limiter and, and found that if you use it enough to get the loudness you were looking for, it's not sounding right? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've played with limiters enough to just, to, I turn the knobs all the way just to see what kind of effect it creates. But yeah, yeah, when I'm trying to get my song loud, I put a little too much limiting on it and it's got that dull sound that you were talking about. And, you know, the way you explained it makes perfect sense to me. But yeah, too much limiting just on a track just to get it, try to get to that loudness, it doesn't work. I think that's right. And we're going to talk about loudness in detail towards... Uh, the end of this kind of sequence of of episodes, so I won't get into it too much here. But the other thing to say is that these days there's less and less point in even trying to get that loudness for its own sake in the first place. Um, sometimes I want to use a limiter quite heavily because of the sound that it gives something. So I'm not saying people shouldn't, you know. There's definitely it's definitely the case that if it sounds good, it is good. Right. With this stuff, but as a rule, I would say the stuff needs to be invisible. The other thing I was going to say is that people often ask me, what are the ideal settings for a limiter? Um, and I'm going to come back to one of those because that's the mastering maxim this week. Ah. But overall, I would say, again, because you're using, I'm recommending you use a limiter gently and subtly, the individual settings are less important. I think if you get to the point where you're obsessing about I don't know, maybe the, you know, the, what kind of knee you have or the attack and release times and all that kind of stuff. Possibly you're using the thing too aggressively. I see. In my experience, most limiters, especially the ones I mentioned and ones like them, will give you a decent result if you don't go too far. Where do you keep your threshold? That's what I'm going to come to in the Mastering Maxim. <laughs> I want to keep people in suspense for the Mastering Maxim. So I'll ask one more question. Um, a lot of dolls come with limiters. 
Ableton has like just a one knob limiter, I think. Um, I use the Studio One limiter. How Have you found that the limiters that come with software are, how, how what, what's your opinion of them? Honestly, I don't know. I haven't okay. used the stock limiters enough to, to give you a genuine opinion. I mean, one thing that I would say is one limiter that I have used because I do, I go out to talk to students in colleges and as part of a talk there, I do a workshop at the end where I I get students to give me songs that they've been working on and I do a kind of instant master for them, a master in inverted commas, using only the stock plugins. And for some reason, it's usually logic that I end up working in. Um, so I do have a bit of experience of using the, there's, there's two limiters in logic. Um, and I think I use the adaptive limiter most of the time. Okay. That works fine. Um, okay. you know, that the whole point of that demonstration is I only use level EQ and limiting. I don't mm. push the levels too hard. And of course I'm at the mercy of whatever monitoring I have. So quite often it's little Mackies on a desk. So it's not a proper master, but the, the amazing thing about it is that just by using those three tools, you can bring a set of tracks that sound wildly different to each other to the point where they would kind of sit together okay on a compilation album. Huh. I mean, it's often a pretty bizarre yeah. compilation album. There's usually kind of like some extreme death metal, some kind of <laughs> hardcore EDM and some, you know, folk or jazz. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, you know, another thing that I like to say often is that mastering is simple and those demos, they, they kind of prove that because you really can take these three things that just sound like they're on different planets and you even out the loudness, you balance the EQ and suddenly they all fall into place. Um, and yeah, so when I'm using the, the limiter in Logic there, that works fine. And I'm never using it that aggressively. Right. Um, so all the things that I've been saying kind of apply. Um, I know people who use the stock limiter in Pro Tools. I know people who use the stock limiter in Studio One. Um, I think these days, you know, back when I started out, digital limiters were a new thing and you really had to be careful which ones you chose. And when I was uh, using System 6000, the TC system every day, the the limiter they have in that system was probably the best one you could get. Um, I still like it these days, but actually I kind of like it because it doesn't work so well if you push it really hard. Huh. I mean, one of the one of the things I would say is to be careful with limiters because, uh, yeah, like in the the Fab Filter Pro L that I mentioned, I like to choose the punchy setting because actually I hear it pumping a little bit more. Some of the other settings, you just can't hear the limiting, and you just end up with that kind of flat, uninteresting sound. You know, right. they got to the point where it, they're so clean because everybody wants everything louder and louder and louder. So the the people developing the software are getting better and better at making this stuff do what you want it to do. And I think that's the risk. I mean, there's a theory that says that uh, really clean monitoring is also responsible for the really loud levels. I don't know whether I buy into this, but the idea is that back in the day, monitor, you know, speakers and amplification of monitors and stuff weren't of the standard that they are these days. And people got used to the sound of a system that was being pushed to its limits and nowadays, when you have super clean monitoring and amplification, all the rest of it, people still want that feel. So, so they're just pushing push stuff it. harder and harder and harder to try and get that, you know. And I mean, everybody kind of talks about the vinyl sound. For me, one of the big parts 
one of the big parts of the sound of vinyl is that there's a load of distortion in there that isn't in the original signal that you recorded <laughs> um, just because of the format. And actually, I think quite a lot of people quite like that that quality yeah. of distortion. So, yeah, the thing I like about the TC limiter, I mean, I, I, I think it sounds great, but if you start to push it too hard, it sounds less great. And that often is a kind of a signal to me that, oh, I might be pushing it too hard. I see. Um, and the same with the punchy setting on the, on the Pro-L. I feel that's similar. Whereas the ozone limiter in particular, you can just keep pushing it and pushing it and you don't necessarily hear any problems. It's just that actually when you disable it, you suddenly go, oh, that sounded better before. Right. <laughs> so that's definitely something to watch out for. And there's one free plugin from Kajarahus, I think is the name of the company. It's a K-J-A-R-H-A-U-S. And I see it around a lot, and especially in the EDM scene. It's a free plugin. Uh, you could search for it. It's called Master Limiter. And it might be one or two knobs, but I know like Avicii and Laidback Luke and some of these EDM guys definitely use that on their tracks and they get a great sound out of it. So there's some gems out there to find. And uh, Absolutely. I've not heard of that one. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Cool, man. Well, I am curious now actually what the mastering maximum of the day is. Okay, cool. It's nice. It's very simple. Um... It's not going to cost anybody any money, but it may shock some people. Maybe shock's too strong a word. Uh, So this week's Mastering Maxim is set the maximum output level of your limiter when you're mastering your your brick wall limiter that you have right at the end of the processing chain after everything else to be minus one dB. Not zero not minus 0.3 or you hear all kinds of not I would say not minus 0.5 minus 1 so you have a whole db of unused peak headroom at the top of your signal does that sound crazy i'm trying to pull up my limiter now to see what my setting is i have it i'm pretty sure i have it set to 0 so yeah i was expecting to say either 0 or something with a 3 in it <laughs> <laughs> okay so so i'll tell you why the If you stay in pure digital, you could probably get away with zero or very close to zero. And for years, I used minus 0.3. So it's just slightly less than zero. But we're now in the situation where levels are being pushed so high that you get this weird thing where the digital meters read, say, zero. But actually, when that signal gets played back and converted back to analog, the waveform will go above zero. And I don't know if I can convey this without pictures, so we may have to put some links in the show notes so that people can go to somewhere and see how this works. But if you just imagine basically the final stage of a a digital-to-analog conversion is you draw a line that goes through all the dots that were the samples in the original signal. Okay, It's not a stair step, as some people think. It's a smooth curve but it goes through all the points. And if you have two or three points right at the top of the scale at zero dB, mm-hmm. when that curve gets drawn through those points, it's not going to draw a hard corner. It will go above and then wow. loop over and come back down. I see, I see. Now, in some pro-level equipment, that's, that's, that's a thing called an intersample peak because it's a peak in the waveform that happens in between the sample values. Huh. Okay, so you have two or more samples that read zero, but the actual reconstructed analog waveform 
goes higher than zero. At least it would if there's enough headroom. In lots of pro gear, there is some extra peak headroom, but in lots of consumer gear, and certainly in MP3 players and computer sound cards and all the rest of it, chances are there's no headroom. So that peak then will get sliced off, clipped, as we talked about at the beginning of the episode. So you're adding extra distortion in there that you weren't hearing when you mastered it. I see. The problem gets even worse if you then convert that to something like MP3. Because the way that an MP3 encoder works is it slices the signal up using filters into something like 30 or 60 different frequency bands. And then it analyzes them, figures out which ones are the most important and throws the rest away. Uh And then rebuilds the signal. And when that signal gets rebuilt, you can imagine there's no guarantee that the details of the waveform, like the peaks, are going to be exactly the same as the original because you've changed the signal, right? You've thrown nine-tenths of the data away. So, I mean, just to give you some extreme examples, there are songs you can download now from the iTunes store, which if you put them into your DAW, reduce the level slightly and play them back, you will see they are peaking as much as 3 dBs above the original sample levels. My God. So so you genuinely could have 3 dBs of extra clipping added to a signal that weren't there in the first place. So if you imagine the worst case, if you imagine somebody who clips their signal anyway because they're trying to get it loud, they have it peaking at zero, so it's going to have intersample peaks in there anyway, and then it gets MP3 encoded, you've got three levels of clipping distortion being added to that signal. Jeez. Now, you can't know exactly how much this is going to affect you unless you you actually do it, right? So you master your song, MP3 encode it, and then play it back. And most doors these days will show you how much above zero the signal goes. So you could fine-tune the output ceiling of your limiter to be just perfect, so you're not quite reaching zero. But... Life's too short, in my opinion. (laughs) It's much easier. Now, minus one is not a catch-all. So another thing we haven't mentioned so far is that some limiters are intersample peak aware, or Uh also sometimes called oversampled. Um, So they know about the possibility of intersample peaks, and they will take that into account. So if you have an intersample peak aware limiter... So Ozone is in sample peak aware. I think FabFilter Pro L is most most of them are adding it in these days. And you set your output ceiling to minus one. You're pretty much it'll survive the MP3 conversion process, basically. It's got a really good chance. Okay. Um, And actually, uh, Matthew Weiss did a video just recently where he demonstrates this. Um, So we could include a link to that in the show notes so that people can see this in action. And this is, it's a, it's a real thing. I mean, it sounds kind of theoretical, but um, I've done tests and other people have done tests where simply by reducing the output ceiling of the limiter, the encoded signal sounds better. Snare sounds punchier, more clarity, less MP3 artifacts. Wow. So especially if you're uploading your stuff to SoundCloud, which I know a lot of EDM artists are, SoundCloud has a really... Uh, their encoding is less than optimal, I would say. Yeah. That's putting it nicely. And their player adds a whole other layer of stuff. So 
if that's the kind of if, if you think your music's going to end up on SoundCloud, I really recommend you pay attention to this stuff. Wow. Um, so that's why the output ceiling of the thresh of the limiter is always set to minus one. Remember, that's different from the threshold. Um, the threshold I always leave. Well, if you turn the output ceiling down by one, you're basically turning the signal down by one dB in the limiter. So what you could do is set your threshold to minus one as well, which in most limiters will lift the signal up by dB to compensate for that. Which means if you play your music through with no other changes, you're going to get a dB of limiting happening at the top end. Um, but you might as well leave it at zero. And just because, remember, we're choosing the levels based on the sound, the loudness that we hear and the loudness that we see on the meters, not on how much limiting we have happening. And because most uh, DAWs these days use something called floating point processing, it's okay to have levels that go above zero in the mix or in the master, providing you have a limiter at the final output stage. I see. So I'm not going to get into too much detail now, but when I started out, if you hit zero in your DAW anywhere, the signal would clip and the the audio at that point was damaged and there was nothing you could do to improve it. These days, most computer software, I think pretty much every mainstream DAW now, uses floating point processing, which basically means it's okay to have peak levels on the tracks in a mix or on the master output fader go above zero right to the point where you do your final export. And at that stage, you either need to turn it down so that they're not hitting zero or add in a limiter to control them cleanly. I see. So you need to be careful. Some plugins might give you problems, especially if they're plugins that emulate analog gear, because those plugins include... Uh, some of them include the way that that gear would saturate if you push the levels really high. So I'm not just saying kind of push all your levels super hot. I actually recommend people keep at least six, maybe 10 dBs of headroom on most of the channels in their mix and leave all of the final level decisions to, to the mastering stage because that's when you're, you know, what's the point of getting it really loud to begin with and then turning it down at the mastering stage because it's not as loud as the other songs, right? right. It's, you might as well just mix it, keep everything super clean and then process it at the final stage. Um, but when you're in the mastering stage, it means you can crank the level up earlier in the chain and provide you have a nice clean limiter at the output, it should be fine. Makes sense. Well, that was awesome, Ian. A lot of good info there about limiting, and I don't think people are going to be pushing the limiters too hard after hearing what you have to say. Good. I, I, I hope not. <laughs> it's the goal, right? Unless it sounds good. Unless it sounds good. Unless it sounds good. And that's the problem. I, you know, all of this is about usually when people push them too hard, they don't sound good. So, yeah. yeah. That works for me. Cool. If you guys want to hear any of our other shows, we have a website set up for this podcast. It's themasteringshow.com. All of our show notes are going to be in there. The links we talked about today are going to be in there. And um, any other information related to the show will be there. That's right. And to make sure you don't miss out on future episodes and be notified as soon as they go online, make sure you sign up for the email list. We'll be letting you know as soon as new episodes go online and keep you up to date with all the other news about the show. And please head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening to us now. Uh, leave a review, leave a comment or a rating. Tell us what you think. Um, it helps spread the word and it helps us make it better for you in future.
You can find me at productionadvice.co.uk or at Ian Shepherd on Twitter. And you can find me at edmr.com. That's edmmr.com. We have about three other shows on the network there all about making cool music. Well, that was a great show. I hope you guys learned a lot. And uh, thanks so much, Ian, for uh, bringing the knowledge. My pleasure. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, Thanks for listening.